the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, May 10th, 1869. I'm Sally Helm. This place is home to rattlesnakes and dust. It's a spot in the middle of the Utah desert, close to the Great Salt Lake. The area has very few residents, but today it sort of feels like the dead center of the country. For years now, two railroad companies have been laying down track that will connect the nation coast to coast. Once the transcontinental railroad is finished, a trip that used to take six months can happen in just one week. One company started laying track in the east, another in the west. And today, they'll meet in the middle, here, at a place called Promontory Summit. To mark the occasion, railroad officials have come to this barren spot to drive in the last spike on the railroad tracks. The spikes were normally made of iron, but the last one, the golden spike, is made out of California gold. Railroad workers drill holes so that the ceremonial spike won't get damaged as it's driven into the ground. And then... The story goes that the officials miss on the first swing. But eventually... The Transcontinental Railroad is officially finished. It will change American life in profound ways. Some historians have called this the most important moment in 19th century America. Photographers are on hand for the day's ceremony. The most famous picture is taken by A.J. Russell. His subjects are two massive locomotives sitting face-to-face on this newly unified track. The pictures are in black and white, but the locomotives themselves are ornate and colorful. One is blue with crimson and brass detailing. The other is adorned with landscape paintings. The two chief railroad engineers stand in front of these fancy-looking trains to shake hands. There are about a hundred other men in the picture, railroad workers and ceremony attendees. But there's at least one group conspicuously missing from this image. Despite making up 90% of one of the company's labor force, despite drilling that hole for the golden spike and later helping to replace the ceremonial spikes with real ones, not a single Chinese immigrant can be seen in this famous photo. At least, not at first glance. More on that later. But regardless, for Chinese workers who just finished building the railroad, this photo serves as a dark omen of what is to come. Today... How did Chinese immigrants come to build what is probably the most important infrastructure project in American history? And how did that open up a brief window of cross-racial acceptance before the tides turned again to violence and hate? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
At the time of the Golden Spike, the president of the Central Pacific Railroad Company was a man named Leland Stanford. If you know him for anything, it's probably for a school he founded out west, Stanford University. That's where Gordon Chang is now a professor of history. He wrote a book called Ghosts of Gold Mountain, the epic story of the Chinese who built the Transcontinental Railroad. The Chinese railroad workers has long been a topic of curiosity for me ever since I was small. I grew up in the Oakland area in California. I'm a fourth-generation Californian. Gordon Chang can trace relatives back to the early 1850s. They were part of a major immigration wave from China to the United States. And many Chinese immigrants during that period would go on to lay track for the Transcontinental Railroad. Chang says a difficult thing about this history is that there's not much original source material about workers' experiences. This has been a struggle for him in his work as co-director of Stanford's Chinese Railroad Workers in North America project. No diaries, no letters, nothing back in China, not not even oral histories of uh, retired railroad workers who talked about their past. We still have not found a single document from a Chinese railroad worker from that time period. Which is pretty notable, he says, because we do have other records, extensive records, from around the same time period. This overlapped with the Civil War, and we have hundreds, if not thousands, of diaries and personal recollections of the Civil War from so many of the veterans. It's also the period of the end of slavery in America, and we also have records from slaves. There's not an immense amount of material, but we do have fascinating and very moving accounts of what slavery was like from slaves themselves. But there are really no similar accounts of what life was like for Chinese immigrants working on the railroad during this period. Still, Chang has managed to piece together a lot of the story. It starts in China, in a very specific region. The Chinese railroad workers did not come sort of haphazardly from around the entire big country of China. They came 90%, maybe even more, from a relatively small area, four counties in southern China, near Hong Kong, near Macau. In the early 1800s, this area was rife with conflict. Civil wars between different ethnic groups, the opium wars waged by the British. People could even watch the battles on sea between the Chinese and British forces from the shoreline. And in this war-torn region, word began to spread about an opportunity in a particular region of the United States. The notion of California being Gold Mountain became embedded and became legendary. They heard the uh, glorious stories of wealth uh, from just going over there and picking up gold nuggets in the streams of California. Soon, many young men from this region set out for California. A lot of them intended to one day come home. Sometimes they were married just before they were to leave because their parents wanted to make sure that they returned. But once they got to California... There were some who were very eager and homesick and wanted to return. They had wives or sweethearts back in China, and they wanted to be with them as or with their parents. Uh, others uh, were, were much not so filial and not so uh, conventional, but liked the money that they got in the United States, the latitude or freedom as young men they enjoyed in the Wild West. There was lots of opium, there was prostitution. And there was work to be had including prospecting for gold. 
which, though Chang notes it's draped in romanticism now, was difficult, dangerous work. It involved moving Earth, using explosives. And when the gold rush was winding down, many Chinese immigrants used that experience to find other work opportunities. Irrigation systems, road systems, aqueduct systems, so a lot of uh, infrastructure work. And when it comes to infrastructure work, there was no bigger project at the time than the Transcontinental Railroad. Maybe no bigger project ever. The journey from the eastern to western United States used to be long and perilous. So there had long been a dream of connecting the country by rail. And in 1862, President Lincoln signs a law that's going to finally make it happen. It stipulates that two companies will build the Transcontinental Railroad. In the east, the Union Pacific starts building from Omaha, where tracks then ended. And in the west, the Central Pacific Railroad Company starts building in Sacramento. The companies got federal subsidies and benefits for each mile of track that they laid. So they were in a high-stakes race. The Central Pacific had a big obstacle in front of them, very literally. The Sierra mountain range is the most rugged and imposing mountain range in the continental 48 states. This mountain range is legendary. Much of it is made out of solid granite. The granite, as we know, is one of the hardest stones there is. Some people think there's no way the Central Pacific guys can do this. They would say that they're crazy. They think they can get out of California. They said they'd be lucky if they can get out of the Central Valley. Plus, California at this time is still the rugged frontier. So a lot of the materials to build the railroad have to be brought by boat from the East Coast. Much of it has to go all the way around the tip of South America. No Panama Canal. They had to bring over the rails, or anything that was iron, including the eventual locomotives. But the labor challenge was in some ways even more difficult because they just weren't the numbers of men willing and able to work on the railroad line. The man in charge of construction for the Central Pacific is a guy named Charles Crocker. And he's advertising at first for only white laborers. Supervisors had racist ideas about how Chinese men were too slight to do the work. They thought it would be too hard to supervise them if they didn't speak English. And basically... They just didn't like Chinese. There was a lot of racial prejudice at the time. And whites didn't want to have anything to do with, with Chinese. But the Central Pacific at this time is just not finding enough workers, partly because of this racist policy. And you need a lot of labor to build a railroad. The railroad line was not just constructed as sort of a, a snake winding its way forward and you just had people working at the head of the snake. You, could, you laid out the line of the snake for hundreds of miles and you could employ thousands of people working at various portions of the line that eventually would be all linked up. And you need those thousands of workers, especially if you are in a high-stakes race with a rival company out east. By 1864, the Central Pacific has made slow, meager progress. And they decide to start advertising for Chinese workers, too. The Chinese who were introduced onto the line did so well, so quickly, that the bosses decided that we had to hire more because they were really making the difference. Eventually, 90% of the Central Pacific's workforce would be Chinese immigrants. And remember, a lot of these Chinese laborers had the necessary experience for this work. 
they'd been previously employed in gold prospecting and building infrastructure. But the work they did was still extremely difficult. They're essentially blasting their way through this mountain terrain. You have accidental explosions, you have avalanches, you have snow slides. The Central Pacific Railroad required the workers to work right through the winter. The Sierra winters are legendary in ferocity. Two of the winters that they worked had the heaviest snowfalls on on record. Accidents were common. Untold numbers of Chinese workers died. The company didn't keep good records. Chang tried to figure out the death toll from news articles at the time. We were able to count up the number of Chinese simply mentioned in these articles, often without any name because they were just called a Chinaman or five Chinamen were blown up or something like this. But Chang and his team eventually found another way to get a sense for how many Chinese workers had died. Just after the railroad was completed, Chinese-American civic organizations, essentially mutual aid groups, would go out along the rail line to collect workers' remains. To be uh, disinterred and packed up and sent back to China. Because that was an essential, what I would call, an existential requirement of uh, the Chinese, that they be buried, their remains, be buried back in their home village for eternity. It was important but gruesome work. You could try to imagine groups of these bone seekers, if you will, and they did one big sweep that took months, and they collected the amount of remains that was estimated to weigh something like 20,000 pounds. And that's estimated to be about 1,200 persons. We don't know exactly how these 1,200 people died. Some of old age, some of accidents, some of murder maybe, or disease, but a good portion of them, large portion of them, they're all connected somehow to the railroad. So the toll was substantial. These workers face not only mortal danger, but also the indignity of low pay, lower than their white counterparts, whom they vastly outnumbered. And in 1867, they take a drastic step to assert their own power. The Central Pacific is right in the middle of blasting through the High Sierras. It's summer, which is the best time to do this work. Even though it's still freezing, there are snowdrifts 10 to 12 feet high. But the company is trying to get as much done as possible before it gets even colder. Summer is their crunch time. So the workers realize... It's the perfect time for a strike. They decided somehow 3,000 of them spread out over miles of construction to stop work. Now, this labor action was the largest labor action in American history to that time. There's no other incident that came close to having 3,000 workers in a coordinated action. But Chang told us the 1867 Chinese railroad workers' strike has been relatively overlooked. And instead, a stereotype gets perpetuated that Chinese laborers were docile, that they didn't make trouble for the company. The strike, he says, disproves that. It was a hugely important moment of collective power, though it didn't lead to hugely improved working conditions or pay. In fact, Charles Crocker proudly claimed to have not bent an inch in the negotiations. But the strike was still an unprecedented moment of coordination and a show of strength. Construction of the railroad spanned seven years. And finally, 
two years after the strike, in the spring of 1869, the moment arrives. The tracks from the east and the tracks from the west come within spitting distance. And it's time to connect the two sides. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. On May 10th, 1869, officials and onlookers gather at Promontory Summit to connect the two sides of the Transcontinental Railroad. It is a moment of national pride. The companies even say that they've laid exactly 1,776 miles of track, 1776, honoring the year of America's independence. This is happening just after the Civil War, and so it's held up as a moment of unity. What's left out is the fact that this national moment was made possible with huge numbers of workers who could not become American citizens. Despite their major contribution to this huge national project, the Chinese workers are not allowed in 1869 to be naturalized as U.S. citizens. They're present at this ceremonial occasion, as are the mostly Irish workers who had laid the other side of the tracks. But they're not honored during the ceremonies. Various officials give speeches to mark the day, but those speeches don't mention the workers at all. And when it comes time to take that famous photo of the engineers in front of those two fancy trains... There appears to be no Chinese in the photo. It's all white men. But uh, when I began my work, I started very early on to re-examine that photo. And uh, it was my wife who actually made this discovery when we went up to the California State Railroad Museum... And there's a large enlargement of the photo there. And she said, well, who is this fellow there? I said, my goodness, you're right. I think he is Chinese. He's unlike everybody else in the photograph. He's not facing the camera, so we can't see his face. But unlike the others, his clothes are working clothes. They're the kind of clothes that the Chinese railroad workers wore. He had a floppy cotton hat on, and his clothes were all tattered. He's also blurry. So it's a perfect sort of metaphor for this story that we're talking about, that he's actually in the frame, he's in the story of the railroad, but he's not visible. This pattern of invisibility and erasure will crop up again and again in the Chinese-American story. And yet, the time immediately following the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad was actually surprisingly optimistic and accepting for Chinese people. Chang calls it the post-promontory promise. This period comes as the Reconstruction period is unfolding in the American South. 
It's a complex period, but during this time... There is an openness nationally about race. And after the railroad is constructed, the Chinese continue to work on railroad lines throughout the whole United States. These workers are definitely among the most experienced railroad workers in the country. And they go do that work all over. Arizona, Texas, Alabama, Tennessee, New England. Many are able to command high wages for the skilled work. And their contribution is acknowledged on the public stage. Major newspapers throughout the country talked about this curiosity of Chinese in ways that sometimes clearly were pejorative or were seeing them somehow as very odd, but also acknowledged their positive attributes. The newspapers lauded the Chinese as possible contributors to America, but also as citizens. And since what's interesting in many of the newspaper articles of the time acknowledged that they should be given the rights of naturalization. But this era of acceptance doesn't last. There was an openness there, a moment uh, that unfortunately is eclipsed, is suppressed by the rising tide of hostility that eventually overcomes the more positive sentiment. Many white Americans begin to feel that Chinese workers are stealing jobs from so-called real Americans. Not long after the railroad is completed, there's a recession. With jobs even more scarce, some white Americans lash out with racist attacks. Two and a half years after Promontory Summit, in October 1871, there's an incident in Los Angeles's Chinatown, where there was an ongoing feud between two Chinese fraternal organizations. One night, a shootout breaks out in the middle of the street. Two police officers respond, and one is killed in the crossfire. When word spreads of the officer's death, a mob of 500 rioters assembles. And... Something like 18, maybe more, Chinese were shot, burned, lynched, mutilated in the street. No one was ever found guilty of these murders. And this was really just the beginning. A few years later, in Rock Springs, Wyoming, 28 Chinese were shot. A couple years after that... In Oregon, along the Snake River, in a place called Hell's Canyon, appropriately, 34 Chinese were brutally murdered and dismembered and butchered. These were mob attacks. This is racial rage that indicates something just beyond anger or competition or some impulse. There are violent attacks on Chinese Americans throughout the 1870s and 1880s. Whole communities burned down, belongings destroyed. And that's one of the reasons why it's been so hard for Chang and his collaborators to find firsthand accounts from the railroad workers. Many of them were lost. By 1882, the U.S. passes the first of the Chinese Exclusion Acts, effectively ending mass Chinese immigration to America and formally preventing the immigrants who were already here from becoming naturalized citizens. Those acts wouldn't be repealed until 1943. And their legacy continues. This history is important for the present moment. We live in a terrible moment right now when there's a wave of anti-Asian violence. It's really disturbing and frightening. There's a specific element about these acts that we hear about these days, and that is that in many instances, the violence accompanies insults to people saying, just go back to your country, go back from where you came from. And this burden of never being fully American really weighs heavily that somehow 
we can never really be American. No matter how long we're here, whatever our station in life, that we can't really be American because we're not this or not that. Even though it was Chinese workers who blasted through granite and fought their way through high Sierra snowdrifts to connect the country for the first time coast to coast. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Julia Press, and me, Sally Helm. McKamey Lynn is our senior producer, and our editor and sound designer is Jonathan Siri. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.